Good afternoon, everybody, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. And yes, I said it because there's only two genders in my world. Um, this is John Harvey, your host of the Model Conservative Podcast. And it is the first day of the week that uh, we are on air. I want to thank everybody for being here. I appreciate your love. I appreciate your attention. I appreciate you putting up my BS and my facts. Um, you know, I was at a Lincoln Day event um, last week, and it's what it is is a GOP event for a lot of the people in the GOP and the higher ups and you know people that are in the movement. And we're basically about you know the country, politics, the rights of our country, the wrongs of our country, so forth and so on. Um, today I have a guest on with me. He's a good friend of mine. Um, I met him a few weeks ago uh, through some other friends. And uh, I really will say, this man knows his crap. He's very smart, a big brain, and he is from the state of Utah. I want you guys to welcome Mr. Andy Badger, who's running for uh, United States Congress against uh, Blake Moore. Andy, how are you? John, doing great. Thanks for having me. Appreciate the intro. <laughs> Dude, let me tell you, at the Lincoln Day you know, um, event dinner, I really didn't know much a lot about you. I've all, I heard your name you know, prior a few months ago, and yeah. uh, I've I heard that you were smart, you were bright, you were brilliant, <laughs> you're almost as good looking as I am. But uh, <laughs> but I did hear I about you, that. But you did have you did have the brilliant part, and uh, <laughs> so to my audience that's new and never heard of your name, um, will you you know let people know who you are? Yeah, no, great. I mean, look, I, I grew up here in Utah. One of the things I always talk about is I went through public school here, kindergarten through 12th grade. Uh, my ancestors come from kind of the pioneer stock who helped first settle up in Cache Valley and right. uh, vanguard of, of the, the pioneer movement coming into the state. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I grew up here, went to school back east, uh, played football, uh, fortunate enough to get a high school championship here. Uh, I was going to let you wear my state championship ring. It's not as good as, <laughs> not as, good as Burgess Owens' Super Bowl ring. But, uh, still, still representing. Yeah. And uh, I have a state record for yards per catch still on the books. But Really? Um, yeah, I went, went to school back east. Uh, you know, public service has always been really important for me, uh, especially defending our country. A lot of my, you know, my grandfathers were in the Navy and served in World War II mm-hmm. and the Korean War and so I wanted to go into to that, and uh, I was an intelligence officer for the Defense Intelligence Agency, which is basically the military's intelligence, uh, you know, that try to understand what our enemies are doing, what their capabilities, what their intentions. Um, my job was in, in human intelligence, so basically trying to recruit informants among the enemy. <laughs> kind of almost like a, you know, if you've watched uh, some of these shows with, you know, recruiting snitches in the right. drug cartel. Something like that. So that was my job. I deployed to Afghanistan in 2014. Uh, I was on the ground there, uh, going out, trying to meet sources from, you know, the Taliban and trying to understand where, where IEDs were and stuff like that to protect our troops. So I was working, you know, side by side with our military, mm-hmm. you know, deployed next to some of our special forces guys called MARSOC, which is the, the Marine Special Forces. Um, yeah. So, I mean, obviously it was an eye opening experience. Uh, learned a lot about about the nature of war, what our military goes through. It's always been a you know big place in my heart. Um, you know, I think we, we've both been, we can talk about this later, but fighting yeah. against the vaccine mandate for our guardsmen. I've been working with a lot of those guys. And, but anyways, so I, I then went into, I went back east, uh, back to the UK for graduate school. I get some heat from this, but I went to Oxford. <laughs> and this was to, this was to study uh, diplomacy. So it was a program for... <laughs> Foreign service program for, for diplomats is actually a really good experience because I got to meet with diplomats from all over the world, get to hear their experiences, how they view the world. And I, I got to learn how America, you know, can better advance our interests in a lot of these, a lot of these institutions and all these things and how we can, you know, make better trade deals, how we can, you know, make better treaties that advance our interests and not do stupid things like this mm-hmm. Iran deal or, mm-hmm. you know these trade deals we've done with China that Trump was fighting back against. So I actually learned a lot, you know, it wasn't some uh, Marxist indoctrination camp. It was actually much focused on foreign policy issues and national security 
And yeah, after that, I wanted to go in the private sector. Last three years, I've been working with a management consulting firm, uh, been basically a risk manager um, for uh, the Middle East, Africa, Russia region. Mm-hmm. I've actually learned a lot about how business works, about how you know international trade works and how, again, we can kind of get the trade deals working for America first, not um, not, you know, not the globalists. So that's kind of my background. Uh, look, I mean, why I'm running is pretty simple. Our country is fundamentally off track. You know, we're in a state of crisis. And if we don't get some fighters back in D.C. to change course, you know, things are just going to keep going the way they are. I mean, a big eye-opening experience for me is what happened in Afghanistan this summer. Right. You know, seeing, seeing men cling to planes you know, seeing our Marines being killed, no accountability whatsoever. And it took away that, look, you know, we have a ship of fools running our country. And the worst part about it is the GOP is not doing anything to hold these guys accountable. Not one officer mm-hmm. or official has been held accountable for what happened in Afghanistan. And if you look at this it's the same thing for everything else, Merrick Garland sicking the FBI against our, our parents, speaking out about CRT, no accountability. Mark Milley, uh, colluding with Chinese generals saying, I'll give you a heads up if, if Trump is war. No accountability. Uh, you know, our border completely broken. You know, ICE, uh, you know, being completely ineffective, having their tie- hands tied behind their back. You know, we have illegal immigrants pouring across the border. No accountability. Anthony Fauci lying before Congress, lying about the funding towards the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Uh, Senator Rand Paul clearly caught him in. No accountability. So I don't. I think if we don't get fighters back in D.C. who are really going to represent the people, mm. uh, we're just going to see what we saw from 2018, 2020. Rand Paul conservatives who are just kind of vanilla, milk toast, you know, just doing the bare minimum to get by. I think we need America first conservatives back there who are ready to fight. Uh, we have to recognize the nature of, of our opponents. The Democrats aren't the Democratic Party from the 1990s. You know, they're not Bill Clinton. <laughs> not right. Guys. They're out to play to win. They're 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 willing to use power at any cost, and we have to have people out there who recognize that threat, who are willing to fight back. Um, and yeah, that's why I want to get back to D.C. I think the fundamental question of this of this election is: Are content with the job the GOP is doing? Are you satisfied with what the current GO reps are doing? Do you think that, that do you believe that they're fighting back hard enough for you? And a lot of people I talk to, they don't believe that. So that's why I think, I, you know, I've been getting a lot of momentum, a lot of support. Oh, you have a lot of support. Given that you've been back a few <laughs> months, you have gotten quite a bit of support. You know, you, you, I want to jump back to something that you just mentioned, the GOP. You know, what brought me, up, brought me to the surface of everything was, well, it was the GOP. You know, the Republican Party is not a party of fighters as it sits and as it stands right now. And the problem with that is, for example, you and I, for example, I don't think we'll be too popular unless they think they can rein us in mm-hmm. and control how we vote. Mm-hmm. See, and seeing and that's the problem with so many politicians. When they go to Washington, D.C., they become part of the, the establishment. They started mimicking what we don't like. You know, already right now we have people in office that I don't particularly agree with right now, because when there's controversy out there, the Republicans don't stand in front of the camera like the like the Dems do. And they will totally destroy the Republican Party and the Republican Party just sit there like, okay, and do nothing. So what's going to make you different from everybody else that we've seen that's gone to, you know, Washington, D.C.? Before I go into public, I said the same thing to Blake Moore. When he was in office, I had a meeting with him up at the federal building a few months back. And, you know, I basically said, you know, everybody goes to Washington, turn out to be a disappointment. What makes you different from the rest of these uh, rhinos or closet Republicans or conservatives? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's a great question. Look, I mean, my, my conservative journey has been forged in kind of being in the liberals lion den my entire life. And you know, I was fortunate enough to go to Harvard I was actually recruited out there to play football. Uh, you know, obviously it's a liberal. Wait, wait, wait. Football or football like soccer? <laughs> Which football one? like American football. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, look, I've had to, I was a part of the Harvard Republican Club. I was, you know, raising my hand, you know, standing up to some professors. I also had a lot of really good conservative professors, mm-hmm. actually. 
Uh, I've been, you know, I've been at the Pentagon. I've been in these kind of corporations. I've always had to defend conservative values. And look, I think there's three things. One, you have to be willing to listen to what the people want. What's important to the people? You know, we throw around this word populist. I don't think a lot of people really know what that means. Right. It means listening to the people. And that's <laughs> actually what a democracy and a republic where you have representatives representing you is all about. I think a couple issues on that front, you know, which, again, Blake is not even talking about. One, CRT in our schools. That's a right. huge issue people are talking about. And that's one of the reasons I'm talking about it is critical race theories indoctrinating our children. Two, you know, we've got to hold these public health officials accountable. I haven't heard Blake say one thing about Anthony Fauci. Mm -hmm. Anthony Fauci has lied. He's completely lost the public trust uh, in terms of handling our COVID response. And then three, we've got, we've got to secure our elections. Look, you can disagree with what level of corruption there was in 2020, all these different things. The fact is we've had two elections now. The Democrats did not accept the 2016 election. Nope. They still don't. They believe nope. that Russia colluded with Trump, which was a complete lie. It was made a thirty-five million dollar lie. That thirty-five was built on opposition research. Was then used by the FBI to literally spy on a opposing campaign. Uh, but look, the reality is, if even if thirty percent of our country can't trust the confidence and have confidence in the outcomes of our elections, a republic can't work. It doesn't yeah. work. No. You know, we have to do whatever it takes to restore that confidence. And I mean, actually, looking historically. You know, why republics and democracies have been so few and far between in history is because the transition of power is very difficult. It's really hard to get that legitimacy of transferring the power. So that's why most of our ancestors over time have been like, well, you know, we might as well just have a king and, you know, have a hereditary transfer, even though it's not the best thing. At least we right. have stability. So the problem, you know, I mean, this is what our founders also recognize. There's always going to be this question of transition of power, there's going to be controversies, this type of thing. So we have to do more to restore that confidence in elections. And again, going back to your question, I just don't see a lot of these establishment GOP talking about these issues. So I think that's the first point. One, listening to the people. Two, you have to be willing not to be liked by the left. The left is only going to not, they're going to hate you if they think you're a threat. And if they like you and accept you, it's because they don't think you're a threat. Exactly. They think you're essentially controlled opposite. That's why they love Mitt Romney, because Mitt Romney, he gets invited to MSNBC, CNN, because they know he's not a threat. You know, he's not going to speak out on the hard issues. He's going to put up a little bit of a fight on you know, inflation, maybe tax cuts. But he's not going to fight out about the important issues. So they love that. And, you know, they hate guys like Jim Jordan. They hate guys like Matt Gates. They hate guys that are actual threat and speaking out. So I think you, it's almost like a personality trait a little bit. You have to have a little bit of a disagreeable personality, kind of going to Jordan Peterson and sense of sometimes, you, you know, you have to be willing to not be liked. Uh, and then the third thing I think is important. I spoke at the uh, Republican Day dinner. We have to reject this Overton window that the left has. And what that means is basically what are the bookends for acceptable political discourse? And the problem is because the left controls the media – they get to decide, you know, what what we get, what issues we talk about and what issues we don't talk about. And so I think, again, going back, you know, we have to reject that. You have to be willing to speak out on the issues that are important to the people. The press has got to hate you. I'm already on Brian Schott's radar. He already hates me. I cracked one joke about him <laughs> at the Lincoln Day dinner. Totally misquotes me. Makes up a quote. Puts it on Twitter. Uh, so, Brian, if you're listening, you got to get your quotes better, man. Um, <laughs> these guys don't like you. No, you're gaining some traction. And if you're being ignored by them, it, it means you're not doing your job. So I think those are the three main issues for me is you got to listen to people. You got to be willing to be hated by the left and you've got to reject their, you know, political correctness. And I've look, I've been speaking out on those issues all, all through my personal life over the last year. I've been really mm -hmm. active on, on social media, speaking out these against these guys. And um, I'm already I'd probably say that the most aggressive in uh, speaking out against these issues right now as well. Um, yeah, I think you you were there at the Lincoln Day dinner, so you know I was I wasn't afraid, to, wasn't afraid to hold back and call these guys out for, you know, why are they voting for the January sixth commission? Whatever your thoughts may be on that, but why not vote for similar commissions on on Afghanistan collapse, on Anthony Fauci, on Mer Merrick Garland, you know, uh, characterizing parents as domestic terrorists? You know, where where are those commissions? So I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid to go into the lines then and call people out. <laughs> you know, in the January sixth, the January sixth incident is what I call it. It's not an insurrection. It's an incident because nobody's been charged. 
for insurrection. It's number one. But number two, that's all about keeping the public, the patriots, the Americans who believe in the Constitution and the rights of way that we have in this country. That's their way of trying to get us to be quiet. If you try this mm-hmm. again, they're saying, this is what happened to you. That's all that's about. You know, I know people that were in the Capitol who are Antifa till this day who are out on the streets. His name is John Sullivan. He's in the Capitol. But yet Mm -hmm. you've got people in the Capitol and when they've been sentenced to trespassing charges. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Trespassing charges. It went for something so extreme where you have to have a commission on it for trespassing charges, something that the Capitol Police couldn't do by themselves. Mm-hmm. So, but the whole the point is making a bigger issue out of this and expanding it larger than it needs to be, so that it wreaks fear on the next time this happens, maybe twenty twenty two. I don't know what the gym's <laughs> got going on because I look. No, sorry, go ahead. I think I think you nailed it. I mean, this is a, a political witch hunt. Look, I mean, I condemned what happened on January 6th. I don't think protesters should have stormed the building. Right. Uh, the reality is it was not a domestic terrorist attack. And by comparing it to Pearl Harbor, comparing Ooh, it to yeah. 9-11, you're doing a total disservice to the actual victims of terrorism. And that's actually the biggest issue I had with this January 6th legislation. If you look at the bill, uh, which reps you know, John Curtis and, and Blake Moore voted for, it calls it a domestic terrorism act. And what do you think is going to happen if we start labeling fellow Americans domestic terrorists? The state security apparatus is going to treat them like domestic terrorists. Exactly. And the biggest gripe people have, and the left just seems to ignore this, is that we want equal application of the law as well. So we had an entire summer of love, 2020, with dozens of people killed, uh, billions of dollars of property damage, federal buildings destroyed, police, uh, police stations burned down with people in them we also forget you know these protesters burned down large tracts of dc mm-hmm. they actually burned down the guardhouse in front of the white house they would have mm-hmm. stormed it if they could have there was just better security and they forced president trump into his bunker and they were cheering that you know, they were cheering that president trump had to go hide in this bunker so then uh, these guys are pretty getting getting all you know let off the hook essentially and you have these january 6 protesters yeah again most of whom are charged on uh, trespassing, being locked away without habeas corpus, without all these things, and that's no what bail. that's what happened. No bail, and so the 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 irony here is the left was more upset about actual terrorists and how they were treated at Guantanamo Bay than they are about January six protesters, and they don't see any. You know, they have this cognitive dissonance that you know you have to have e- equal application of the law. Um, and so, look, it wasn't a domestic terrorist attack. It was wrong. It was uh, for whoever was charged with assault and violence, they should be charged. Correct. Uh, to call this a domestic terrorist attack is just about scoring political points. And let's be real. The Democrats want to use this to distract from what's going on in the country. The FBI has already done an investigation. It's already shown that President Trump didn't collude. It wasn't some grand conspiracy uh, you know, the, the Democrats just want to use this to distract from what's going on in the country. And the problem is GOP is kind of giving it to them, right? There, we have guys like Adam Kinzinger, Liz Cheney, uh, who, are, who are spending all of their time on this issue. And actually, I looked up Liz Cheney. She's on the House Armed Services Committee on a, our Strategic Nuclear Subcommittee. And if you know about, you know, I'm sure you know about China. I mean, they they've gone leaps and bounds ahead of us in certain strategic technology like hypersonic missiles which are you know mock speed missiles i'm like how is liz cheney if her job's oversee that for the military how is she able to do that when she's spending all of her time on the january 6th commission again when we already have the facts before us we already know president trump you know wasn't conspiring for it so i mean that's yeah it's it's a huge issue you know brian shaw he, he's gonna attack me for this make up lies mm-hmm. Um, you know all these things, but the reality is it wasn't a, it wasn't domestic terrorism attack. It wasn't an attempt to over you know it wasn't an insurrection. It was a, a riot, and the people who who the specific people who did it should be held accountable. But they should also be held accountable, just like the other protesters were, should have been held accountable over the summer of 2020. And they, I mean, yeah, they should be be held accountable, but held held accountable to the right charges. Not trumped up charges to make this be more extreme than it is, you know. And the thing you didn't hear about is the officer that shot Ashley, you know. You know, where's he at? You know, what's what's happening with him? You know, she's on the other side of the door and uh, he shoots through the glass to shoot her. She posed uh, no lethal threat to to the officer. 
each should be held. Again, we need equal application of the law. That's all we're asking for. So let's hold the same accountability that we've done for these other police officers uh, who have far less justification. This guy has far less justification than they did. Um, you know, also the, the media's lies about this. So if you remember Officer Sicknick, mm-hmm. the media pushed the lie that he was killed by protesters with a fire extinguisher. <laughs> CNN ran with that. All these guys ran with that. Brian, I'm, Brian, I'm probably sure you probably ran with that story. It was a complete <laughs> lie. They've done the autopsy. He died from a stroke from natural causes, yeah. which is terrible. Um, again, this is not to justify in any way, you know, the limited violence that happened that day or, or assaults on police officers. But again, showing this point that the media was lying about these stories to push a specific narrative. Um, you know, so that's what I think that's what I'm speaking with people. They find most troubling is, you know, these the lying, the, the hyperbole that this was, again, 9-11 when it wasn't. Um, and that's where we just want to scale. We, we need to start focusing on real issues. We, we've resolved this, you know, case. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's why I think there's a lot of discontent with the representatives who voted for the January 6th commission. You know, one thing I find interesting, interesting in these times since 2020, um, I remember back in the day when in the, in the media, we would always hear what's going on in other countries, you know, Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, Iraq, Iran, you know, Ukraine, uh, you know, Russia, it's ironic how we've become isolated from the rest of the world. You mm. don't, since the advent of COVID, I should say the invent of COVID, we don't hear what goes on in the rest of the country. Mm. And um, like, you know, the COVID scare. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, Americans don't realize what we do, what we're doing here is only only mostly practice in states, countries such as, uh, uh, I can't speak today, countries such as uh, Australia and Canada. Yeah. yeah. But we don't hear about the other Europe that are protesting, not wearing masks, not mm-hmm. imposing mask mandate. We're doing it here. Why do you think it, that they're strongly pushing the mandates and the mask and the vaccine in this mm-hmm. country and keeping us isolated from knowing the actual numbers of uh the vaccine yeah i mean there's obviously a clear narrative that wants to be pushed i mean the heart of scientific inquiry is skepticism it's questioning assumptions it's being based by fact it's being guided by facts not what you want to see or hear uh so i think it's really it's a great point i mean we need to look at more other countries i mean look japan they don't have Hmm, vaccines right they're, they're much more focused on early treatment therapeutics. You know, India, same thing. They don't have vaccine passports. Uh, you know, Africa, a, con- a continent we don't talk much about, which is, has gotten through the, the pandemic a lot better than most people expected, again, without a lot of these draconian crackdowns. And let's, you know, let's look at Israel. Israel's going on their for- fourth COVID booster shot. They just had a spike in the highest COVID cases ever. Uh, they have a strict vaccine passport. So, I mean, this is not to say, you know, even to judge what, which country has done the best and, and whatever it is, but it's about, yeah, we need to have open inquiry. We need to ask these hard questions. You know, why is Africa done so well? Why is Japan doing this? Why is India able to get through these spikes with a different different approach? Uh, and then I think Europe offers a very stark contrast. You have certain countries like Italy which are and Austria, which are now basically – Austria just passed a law – and if you don't get a vaccine, you have to pay a 3,600 euro fine. And they go pretty much stopping people sidewalk to, you know, on the sidewalk. You have the contrast of Sweden. And people got a lot of hard time about Sweden early on because they actually had a little bit higher case, um, mm-hmm. case load. But if you look at long term, they're actually the, one of the lowest countries in Europe. Uh, and the same thing with the UK. UK has avoided a lot of these draconian measures. They don't have vaccine passports. Um, and they've done better than other countries, which do have very strict uh, measures in place. So I think it's a good point. We need to have much, and it kind of goes to the bigger issue about the COVID thing, is that we need to have much broader debate. We need to have be able to ask hard questions. We need to challenge assumptions. Uh, you know, we had the Salt Lake Tribune, our, our far left extremist, who basically wanted the National Guard. And let's be clear about what they meant by National Guard. They meant men with guns. Mm-hmm. They meant men who could do violence. Mm-hmm. Enfor- out on our streets, uh, enforcing these COVID vaccine passports. What does that mean? That means if your kid is not vaccinated and they want to go to school, National Guard, they were pretty much saying, we want men with guns, stop them. 
So that's the level of extremism we've gotten to. And the left has no limiting principle. They can't say, you know, when does this stop? You know, when has it gone too far? They can never say that. And so it's a huge issue. You know, we need to have much greater debate about this. You know, when Trump was in, I don't know how people feel. I mean, I'm a Trump guy, even though I did not vote for him initially. I'm a Ted Cruz guy. But Mm -hmm. I learned to like Donald Trump because he kept his words to the people. Yeah. Um, Now, but, you know, when he was in office, we didn't have, like, for example, North Korea. Yep. He's Mm -hmm. back at it again now. Mm Mm-hmm. He's back at it again now. Now, a lot of times you don't hear about this stuff because people can make can realize that when when Trump was office, we're having problems now that we've never had before. Yeah. So mm-hmm. let's keep everybody isolated so they cannot we cannot c- connect the dots. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, we are connecting the dots. Guys like you and myself, we we educate mm-hmm. people. We make them knowledge of what's going on in the rest of the world. Now, when you go to office. You're going to become a target. Not only will the Democrats not like you for what you stand for and what you believe, nor will some of the Republicans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so here on the outside, that's why we think the younger guys can't get an edge because the older guys like Romney and Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham. Look, I don't care much for Mitch McConnell or Lindsey Mm -hmm. Graham. There's a lot of things on the TV screen. Mm-hmm. but do nothing when it comes to um, working for the people because they feel like it would piss some people off and hurt some people's feelings. That's the problem yeah. with the Republican Party. They're worried about hurting somebody's feelings when a Democrat can stomp all over their constituent, our, the Republicans' constituents, but the Republicans won't stand up for their own constituents when the Democrats are doing so. Yeah, I mean, it's such a great point. I mean, when Republicans are finally waking up and realizing we have to use power to conserve our way of life. And so that's what Governor DeSantis is using. Right. He's fighting back. That's what Governor Youngkin just did the other day. I saw it. it Left nuts because they're so used to just kind of these compliant GOP, Mitch McConnell, Mitt Romney, who are just going to kind of put up a little bit of a fight, but essentially just be a a speed bump in the the march of progressivism. Mm And my point, I, you know, I spoke at the Lincoln Day dinner was this is, you know, we should strive to be united, but uh, we can only unite around strong conservative principles. That's how we're going to be a united party, a house built on appeasement, especially appeasement to this radical progressivism cannot uh-huh. stand. And, and so, look, I mean, we need to get fighters back in D.C. who are not just going to, you know, kowtow to the Democrats. And I think that comes with having a, a strong you know, foundation of what your conservative principles are. It means build, being willing to to fight back and, and using power. I mean, look, I'll give you a couple examples. One, uh, Ted Cruz. So Ted Cruz held up uh, judicial nominees from the Biden administration until they uh, opened up a vote about this Nord Stream 2 pipeline. So that this pipeline is basically letting Russia pump gas into Europe and letting Russia gain huge leverage over Europe. President Trump put sanctions on that pipeline. President Biden ended those sanctions while also shutting down our own Keystone pipeline. So let's do the math on that. But anyways, Cruz, he said, no, we're not going to appoint these judges until you let us have a debate about having these sanctions. What happened? The Democrats caved. Or, you know, we had a chance. uh, There's this thing called the National Defense Authorization Act, which is basically the bill we passed to fund our military. And there are some Republicans that said, look, we're not going to pass this until you get rid of this this vaccine mandate for for our troops, our soldiers, and uh, you know we we were able to talk them down to at least not getting a dishonorable discharge, but that's not good enough, you know. So we you know we could have uh, not passed that bill until we got what we wanted. So I think that's you know that's the kind of mindset we need to get in there is that almost just doing kind of what the Democrat being willing to use power, being willing to fight legislatively to get. You know, our objectives, when our objectives are to conserve the American way of life, to protect our rights, our life, our liberty, uh, you know, these type of things. So, um, yeah, I mean, again, if we want to unify as a party, it's not going to be around this Liz Cheney, Mitt Romney ideology. Uh, It's going to be around a strong America first platform. Uh, Actually, I mean, I love to talk about you raised about Trump's foreign policy. I one issue that never gets enough credit is Trump's foreign policy. Mm-hmm. You know, he had a very successful foreign policy. 
We avoided any forever wars. We secured the border. Uh, we defeated ISIS, which at one point had become the largest, the same size as the UK in the Middle East, created this uh-huh. Islamic state. Uh-huh. He destroyed that. He contained Iran. You know, he, he ended this crazy Iran deal, which just basically gave money to Iran. Uh, and then the most important thing is he shifted the whole dynamic on China. You know, so for 30 years, we've been told China, if we let them in and get these trade deals, if, you know, we give them our uh, economic intellectual property, all these things, well, they'll, they'll democratize, they'll become peaceful. That proved to be 100% false. It's probably the greatest intelligence failure of our lifetimes. And Trump completely changed that dynamic. He said, look, we're not going to let China just keep taking advantage of us. We're going to fight back on these trade deals. We're not going to let them steal our intellectual property. We're not going to let them, you know, manipulate their currency, all these things. And so, and yeah, I mean, the Biden administration has completely dropped the ball on that for I never hear about them challenging China. So I think just on that last point is is really important because we don't talk about it is that Trump actually had a very successful foreign policy, and what we're seeing right now is our enemies abroad, and just like you said, are sensing weakness. So oh, yeah. you have North Korea, oh, yeah. you know, testing new missiles. They're they're supposedly testing hypersonic missiles, which can travel, you know, Mach five and basically reach the U.S. very quickly and and get around our missile defenses. You have Russia on the verge of war in Ukraine. Right. They never tried that under Trump, right? Nope. And you also you have China, who's speaking up uh, in more belligerent tones about you know invading Taiwan. So these our enemies abroad sense this weakness, and they sensed it very clearly after, after Afghanistan. They saw an old man with dementia who was not in control. He saw they saw woke generals who were more worried about white rage than they were about the enemy. Uh, he saw they saw Anthony Blinken who you know stayed on vacation while the Taliban was overrunning Kabul. And so it's, it's, it's a very dangerous moment right now in terms of our foreign policy. And the American people really, I mean, the, those of us that follow politics and, and current world events and past world events, we can see the writing on the wall. The problem is, you know, a lot of Americans, are not, they are not as in tune as you are, you and I are, as far as uh, mm-hmm. what goes on other countries. But speaking mm-hmm. of um, geography, you're from Utah. One mm. of the big one of the biggest issues in Utah right now is CRT. Yeah. You know, right now for us in a Republican state, um, it's really a big deal because in our state, you know, majority white. Mm-hmm. And according to CRT, the majority of the white people in our state are racist or mm-hmm. they are we are you guys are oppressors. So tell me, give me your take on uh CRT and give me some alternatives. Mm-hmm. CRT, CRT, if you have any, I have my own yeah. thoughts about CRT and basically shoot it in the barrel. But yeah. uh, but tell me, give me your thoughts on it. Well, I just like love to start out by just pointing out, you know, the left is losing their mind because Governor Youngkin is passing executive orders banning <laughs> CRT, but they can't quite make up what they're. They can't quite make up what their narrative is going to be. Is it the CRT not exist? In which case, why would you care about these executive orders? Or is CRT about teaching slavery, which you know any rational person, reasonable person, is not even not arguing? <laughs> so they can't quite they can't quite make up their mind on what their storyline is going to be. But look, you know, the reality, I like I like telling people, I went to public school here for 13 years in, in Utah. Uh, I'm a product of the Utah public school system. Not once was I ever taught any of this garbage. In fact, I remember in third grade, you know, our, our class got in, you know, we we're kind of just walking through the, uh, the Pledge of Allegiance and mm-hmm. we weren't doing it right. Mm-hmm. Our teacher stopped it and she went through and started explaining why it was so important, you know. And, you know, we, we used to value these things. And, and I attribute a lot of my kind of patriotism and desire to, to go into public service and, and go overseas and uh, to, to that education, that upbringing. And so it wasn't that long ago that we were teaching our kids the right things. So, you know, that's why I think it's important not to not to let the build this kind of enemy up to be too big that it is. You know, we can mm-hmm. defeat we've defeated these guys before, we can do it again. It's about, you know, having our parents step up, take back control. And look, for me personally, this is one of the biggest issues I'm running on. I think this is a state-driven issue. You know, the real fighters, I've just met so many great mothers and and fathers as well who are who are in the trenches just doing this fight. You know, Utah mm-hmm. parents united. I mean, went on the Capitol. I saw you there at the Utah Capitol exactly. tour. 
these, you know, I'm just so impressed by these women, the, the fight they give and the passion that they have. And look, I believe they're the ones that are going to win this fight. Uh, but what I believe I can do at the congressional level is back them up. You know, I can give them that support from the congressional level. There's a few things. Tom Cotton has proposed a bill about banning um, federal funding for CRT. I think any funding that comes from the Department of Education needs to be strictly have transparency requirements, uh, be open, open source knowledge. Uh, I think we need to fund patriotic education like the 1776 Commission and really teach Americans about about our history. Uh, and then I think the most probably the most important thing is is having representatives enter into this cultural national debate because that helps shift the narrative and helps build the case. It gives the momentum to the state level. So when we have representatives like Mitt Romney and Blake Moore who, who never speak out on this issue ever, you know, maybe they'll start speaking out as the midterm comes up. But by doing that, by staying silent, you know, you're weakening our, our overall position, you know, the overall cause. So you know, if I get in office, I, I want to be speaking out about these important cultural issues. I think this is kind of something part of the new right, the new GOP, that we're not just going to stay silent on these cultural issues. Uh, and look, we're a multiracial country. We're an experiment. Uh, most nations have been built on, you know, the same race, the same language, culture. We have to stay united. You know, that's why that's why countries you have rituals and traditions is to unite a people because it's really hard to keep a people united. I mean, that's the lesson throughout history. That's why we have a flag. That's why we have an anthem. We do these rituals to build unity, to keep our traditions alive. And by just discarding them without any, you know, consideration is very dangerous. Uh-huh. And the left just wants to remake. They, they think our history and our traditions, our ancestries, they're so much smarter than them, that all of our ancestors were all bigots. And that there's, you know, that if, they, that if they just got all the power, they could design this modern utopia based on rationalist principles. And the fact is they can't. They're not that smart. <laughs> and actually, <laughs> I, 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 I pose this question, you know, how, how are future generations going to judge us? Because, you know, we profit off of, a slave system in China, you know, without many people speaking out about it. And in fact, I just want to raise, you know, the you have Muslims. Owner, the, yeah, exactly. You have the owner of the Golden State Warriors coming out and he said, I don't care about the Uyghurs. I don't care. You know, it doesn't even, he, here's my line, doesn't even reach it. And what, you know, what does that mean when there's a probably, you know, estimated to be a million Muslim Uyghurs in slave camps who are often with these cotton, you know, they're picking cotton that's funded for Nike and H&M. And we don't speak out about that. And guess who proposed a bill to ban uh, companies profiting off of that? Mark Rubio. And guess who opposed it? The Democrats. So, you know, I think it's really important that we learn our history. Obviously, I went to public school. I learned about slavery. I learned about Jim Crow laws. I learned all about that. I also learned about the immense positive things of our country, especially compared, you know, this is mm-hmm. this is a relative mm-hmm. game. You know? mm-hmm. No country has a perfect history. But also, I think we need to probably shift the focus a bit on what can we do to, to stop this today from happening? Because, you know, we still have slavery in the world. We have China, which is the largest modern slave state uh, in the world. And what are we doing to fight back against that? So, you know, but the left, of course, they don't talk about that because it doesn't give them political power. They don't want to talk about the Uyghurs because it doesn't help them politically. And we have to remember that they don't really care about CRT. The only reason why they care about it is because they think it's a way for them to get political power. They think by dividing us into tribes, you know, they can then win over certain tribes and, and stay in office. Um, so we have to kind of remember what their goals are in this. And, and that's why it's such a dangerous, you know, it's such a dangerous doctrine because it's about division. It's about trying to stir resentment. Um, you know, I th- I've always said, and I've said it many times on my show, that the Democrat Party is the most correct corporation in the world. Yeah. I mean, because all it is, money, 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 money. You know, I read a study somewhere. I can't remember where it was, when they were showing the ratio of millionaires, Democrats to Republicans. Democrats become millionaires a lot faster in office than Republicans. Mm-hmm. And I can't, I think it was like a 40% greater. And, uh, you know, I firmly believe this. If you could run for <laughs> office, you shouldn't profit from your, your position. Yeah. I, yeah. I really think when you go in the office, okay, we don't, let's say we know, let's, let's be honest, Democrats or Republicans are not going to vote for term limits. It's just not going to happen. 
Yeah. It's just not going to happen. It's been said, it's been said many a time. This is what we're going to do. Well, you know what? Politicians have to vote on their income mm-hmm. and lessen their power. And it's just not going to happen. But I do think somebody should have a let put a draft leg- legislation where before you go into office and you're sworn in, you should have a net worth. Mm. And your net worth shall not exceed that by maybe 15% while Mm -hmm. in office. Mm -hmm. So you can't do like, for example, the Clintons. (laughs) Yeah. When they went in and broke and come out worth $320 million via their foundation. And because, you know, you know, it's a racket when Chelsea Clinton is running the Clinton foundation and she has a net worth of $50 million. And all she's doing is running the Clinton network. So you know there's yeah. corruption there. Her mom was Secretary of State. You know Biden's. You know how did Biden become a multimillionaire? Anthony Fauci, we just discovered, had ten million dollar you know pension fund. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, multimillionaire, been a government employee. Uh, you know Bernie yeah, Sanders. I mean, Bernie, yeah, the that's socialist that's, Bernie Sanders. Three homes. Three homes. I don't have one home. <laughs> So there's a little bit of a disconnect here. He's never had a real job in his life. I mean, look, one of the bills I definitely support is banning congressmen or their spouses from trading individual stocks. There you, you know, go. Maybe they blind trust with uh, index funds, that type of thing. Uh, it's actually Senator Ossoff in Georgia and another Republican. So it's, it's actually probably the only bipartisan bill out there. But I, I support it because I think you know we shouldn't have congressmen or congresswomen getting kind of insider information, especially with the pandemic on – you know, what type of stocks we buying. Obviously, Nancy Pelosi is, seems to have profited from that. Uh, you know, my opponents had some issues with disclosing their stock uh, mm-hmm. stocks. But look, it doesn't really help. doesn't really affect me. I have to be honest because I don't have much stocks. I don't have much money. But <laughs> <laughs> I think it's important nonetheless. I think, you know, look, I mean, you shouldn't be going into public service to make money. Uh, and that's just, you know, full stop. And, you know, we definitely need to also have a conversation about term limits. I mean, a guy like you know Biden, you know, he's been in office for fifty plus years, and um, you know there's a real question there of of how how accountable you can be held, how you know why you should be profiting off a of public office. So another hot topic right now here in Utah is our National Guard. You yeah. briefly touched on it earlier. So for those people who don't know that you know we've been pushing for the governor to do something about um, the mandates and uh, the governor. Well, we got a letter from the governor's office. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but they basically said that the, the governor's only chief of command of the national guard while they are active. When they're in idle, they are under the DOD. That's literally what he, we're trying to find out the actual statute on that. Because I haven't seen that anywhere. My understanding per the Constitution, you know, every state has to have a militia. And our militia is our National Guard. So my question is this, then. If the DOD is running the National Guard when they're idle, what determines active and inactive? Or who determines active and inactive? I think Governor Cox has this completely wrong. In fact, uh, five Republican governors from Wyoming, Alaska, Iowa, and Mississippi, Nebraska sent a letter to Secretary of Defense Austin explicitly telling them that when the Guard is not called to national duty under what's called Title 10, Act of Service, mm-hmm. they are mm-hmm. under the command of the Commander-in-Chief of the state, which is the governor. Mm-hmm. And this has actually been upheld by the Supreme Court, Perpich versus Department of Defense, 1990. So... The reality is until they're called to active duty service, they're under the command of the governor. And look, we need to exp- – this is uh, the recent court ruling for the, the Navy SEALs, which challenged uh, the mandate as well. Whether you agree with the vaccine or disagree, it doesn't matter. But we have to extend the same rights for medical freedom and personal choice uh, that we do to all citizens, to our military service members. We also have to consider the logistics here, even if you know, leaving that aside, you want to disagree with that. Let's raise the issue of booster shots because Israel is coming out on their fourth booster. The the trial data is finding waning efficacy for the vaccine on those. This is not, again, conspiracy. That's just from the Israeli Ministry of Health. 
we're finding the EU EU regulators just came out the other day saying that short term boosters are not going to be sustainable. We can't boost entire populations every three to four months. So let's pivot that question back to the National Guard and the military. How are we feasibly going to have booster shots for our entire military every three to four months? Huh. It's just not it's not going to happen. We can't do it. We also have to have other considerations about retention and uh, recruitment. The Army's having a very hard time recruiting right now. They just bumped up their bonuses to $50,000. Uh, maybe I'll resign them. I know. It's pretty good. <laughs> it's, it's money Man, I'll resign them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but also retention. I mean, I've had guardsmen reach out to me uh, saying, I've been 17 years. I've gone through all these different courses. Training's probably hundreds of thousands of dollars. And they're just going to kick them out. And then how, how, you can't replace those guys quickly. You can't no. hire an 18 year old kid and expect them to be up to speed where a 45 year old who has 17 years and all these qualifications so it's, that's you know if we want to talk about readiness let's talk about that let's talk about how that affects our readiness and if you can't get kids to work nowadays how in the hell are you going to get them in the military and take a shot yeah i mean if yeah i mean again it's going to hurt our recruitment um so i think this is a huge issue look i, I think you know we're both at the capitol tour I, I think our our congress our state house and state reps uh you know it's not a per se, a federal Congress issue. This is a state issue. I think they need to be putting more pressure on Cox. You know, you're seeing Governor Abbott in Texas fight this back. He's saying, I'm not going to enforce it. Uh, you're seeing that in Oklahoma. You're seeing that in other places. And um, yeah, I mean, it just comes down to the fact that we we should extend the same rights to, to medical choice about what type of medical treatments you want to get to our service members, because I think they deserve that. As, also, as well as our healthcare members, a lot of people right. celebrate it you know, the, the Supreme Court striking down this OSHA mandate, but they don't realize the second part of that was it kept the mandate for tens and tens of thousands of healthcare workers. Um, and so, you know, we can't be satisfied with those little victories. We got to, you know, we got to win all the way. That's what's confusing with me. I look at it when something is unconstitutional to one, then it's unconstitutional to all. So even in the federal government, if you're a federal employee, whether you work in TSA, whether you work in IRS, whether you work in air traffic control or whatever it may be, I don't understand how the Supreme Court can come about, come around and say it's only for companies with 100 employees or more. If it's unconstitutional to those individuals, why isn't it unconstitutional to all? Even though you work under the federal government, the federal government works within the confines of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. So yeah. how is it they can get excluded? It just boggles my mind how the Supreme Court didn't say, I guess, I, I don't know, if somebody had but, to actually sue for that on the federal side. But this is actually, it makes the most, the strongest that we can have about why we shouldn't have a single-payer socialized medical system. Because once the government gives you funding, once you're dependent on the government, they control you. So what the Supreme Court did was that they said, okay, well, we, because we give federal funds to Medicare and Medicaid, anyone accepting those fundings, they're under the federal government control because they get that funding. So that's why it's so dangerous. <laughs> the more we get under government, federal government control, the more we're dependent on them, the more under the control of them we are. And so I think that ruling from the Supreme Court shows once and for all, you know, we are never going to have a government-run healthcare system because the moment we do, like we have what they have in the UK, National Health Service, the government gets to decide gets to decide who gets healthcare treatment, and uh, you know that's just not the way. You know, I just think um, that the federal government oftentimes oversteps its boundaries, but yet they keep doing. It. As long as they are not pushed back, they'll keep going forward with their agenda. And the thing is, American people don't understand because the government tells you so. It's not necessarily always legal, first and foremost. But but most Americans don't understand that. They think because it's coming from the federal government, it must be true. Yeah. No. And that's and that's a problem in my country because what's here's what they and here's one that amazes me when it comes to COVID. Real quick, I want to get back to um, when people put on the paper mask. On the side of that box of 10 or 15 or 20 that's in the box, that comes in that box, on the side it says, this mask does not protect you from viral infections. Mm. But they put the mask on as if their mask is special. Mm. Even though it said it does not protect you on the box, 
their common sense doesn't click in and say, then what the hell, why would I wear it then? They'll still put it on because the government told them to. This is the craziest time I've ever seen in my life. And that's, again, just goes back to this importance of critical thinking, you know, challenging assumptions. You know, what are the actual facts? I mean, we kind of knew early on that a cloth mask isn't going to stop an airborne virus. And it's pretty amazing to see how the the narrative on that is shifting so quickly. I mean, the CNN health commentator just said that they're pretty much decorations on a Christmas tree. And now the Biden administration is going to mail out N95 masks to everyone. So after two years, it took us two years to figure out that these cloth masks aren't as effective as N95s. Uh, you know, we couldn't produce N95s for everyone over two years. So their logic is just kind of imploding. And again, that's why it goes back to just critical thinking. And, you know, I, I know we're kind of getting to a close here, but just one quick point on, you know, like I've been in these fancy schools. I've also been out working as a ranch hand in Vernal. I asked about the people I worked out there in Vernal right after college, they're wiser. They're, they're, they're smarter than these people at these schools because they have everyday common sense. Mm-hmm. You know, they challenge, they think rationally, they challenge assumptions. You know, they, they look at what's really happening in the world and see it for what it is. And a lot of these intellectual elites in DC, they're so disconnected from reality and they're in this little bubble in this echo chamber. They only hear, you know, go to, go to, you know, go to some of these Twitter feeds, uh, you know, on <laughs> oh, Scarlet Tribune, and you hear them, they're reinforcing themselves. They think, you know, that's why they that's why they go out and say we need we need the National Guard, i.e. men with guns to go out and enforce these vaccine rules because they're so disconnected from reality. So I think that's why I love just going out and talking with everyday people because they actually do have a, a better sense of what's going on. They're willing to question things. They're willing to think, think critically. I'll have every morning. Most mornings I have a coffee at a particular coffee shop. It's called Hidden Peaks, Hidden Peaks oh. in Murray. Mm-hmm. And so my buddy runs that. And so we're having coffee one morning and I, I sit down, I sit around with a bunch of older people. I'm the youngest at the table. I'm 56 years old. And the youngest one next to me is 62. And uh, <laughs> so we, we talk politics. Well, every once in a while we have a conservative and I mean, a liberal who sits with me mm-hmm. and he's bold, he's brave. He's been around for a long time. And he said to me one day, he says, you know what I hate about all, the, uh, all this go all that's going on. He said, um, I hate the fact that the unvaccinated are spreading the vax, the virus to the vaccinated. And I looked at him. I said, are you freaking kidding me? Did you just say that sitting at my table? Mm-hmm. I said, you are aware that you're three times vaccinated, right? I said, mm-hmm. do you understand that? He says, yeah, but I'm not fully protected because I, I haven't had gotten the booster yet. I said, actually, you are. Your Mm. third shot should have been the booster. Your first booster. You're supposed Mm. to be, I should, you should have no fear of me. So Mm. my point with that is that um, people do not use their common sense because it must really hurt their brain. Because when you sit there and you say stupid shit like that, excuse my French, it's my show. When you say stupid shit like that, I got to call you out because you're vaccinated. You've been drinking the CNN and Fauci Kool-Aid as far as you're getting your disease, your infection from me, but um, strange times. So before we have to go, we've got about six minutes left. Um, Mm -hmm. What, you know, I'm going to give you a few minutes to talk to the people and tell them how to get in touch with you, who you stand for, where you're from, uh, where you mm-hmm. want to go with this country, where you want to take the, you know, the constituents in this state and why we need to vote for you. Um, I will say, you know, every time I talk to you, I know you more and more and more. And each time I learn about you, um, you're getting my vote. You know, <laughs> you know, I deal with a lot of people. We run mm-hmm. in some of the same groups. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I will say you do make common sense. And that's what I do like. <laughs> So give it a shot. Yeah. Talk to the people. You got a couple of minutes and I'll come back. Or I'm going to sit here and enjoy what you got to say. Yeah, look, thanks, John. I think, you know, the fundamental question of this election is, are you satisfied with the direction of our country? You know, are you satisfied the GOP is fighting back hard enough against authoritarianism? And if you can answer yes to that question, go ahead, you know, vote for my opponent, Blake Moore. But if you think there's more we can do, that's what I think we can do, you know? So that's why I'm running. I think 
the GOP has got to get over this defeatist mindset. We've got to recognize that we we used to be in power. We used to be winning. You know, mm. it wasn't that long ago. And we yeah. can get back to that. And uh, look, I mean, I'm running because I think we not only need to take back our country, we need to take back our schools. We need to take back our elections. We need to be take back our military, our police force, uh, our, you know, all these different things. And we need to take back our medical freedom. We need to take back our rights. And look, I'm running on an America first platform. I think we need to put America first at home and abroad. And I think we need a little fight for that. Now, that's why my slogan is fight for America. The question, do you, you know, is America worth fighting for? Are we trying to protect our way of life to pass it on to our, 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 you know, our children and their children? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because we were given this gift from our ancestors. You know, I've had grandfathers great, who all fought in wars, almost you know, kamikazes coming down them. And they did that to give us this way of life. And so, you know, one of the things I talked about at the Lincoln Day dinner, we've had a lot of brave men go overseas and fight and die, sometimes in the most awful way you can imagine, alone, you know, dying in their own pool of blood. Let's live worthy of the sacrifice that they did for us. You know, let's try to make them proud. And let's, you know, really honor this gift that they've given us. So, yeah, I mean, that's why I'm running. I want to fight to protect our way of life. And it comes down to, you know, do we think our country is under threat? Um, Because when I look at the Biden administration, when I look at these corrupt governors and politicians, and Mm. when I look at, you know, China, communist China, I think we're under threat. And I I don't think the current GOP is willing to fight back. Um, So, yeah, if you want to support me, I appreciate it. I'm running a grassroots campaign pretty much self-funded up to this point, but I'm, I'm going to need, you know, donation support to, to get, uh, keep this going. And, uh, you can go to badger2022.com. Uh, there's a donation portal there. You know, any amount you can give is, is really appreciated. Also, uh, you know, if you want to help support volunteer, um, you know, love to get your support. Uh, I'm running through the convention. I'm not collecting signatures. Uh, my opponent is collecting signatures going that route. I'm running, you know, grassroots through, through the base and the party. So, we're really going to be dependent on, on people coming out and supporting me. And, you know, look, my, if my message resonates, then, you know, I, I'd be extremely grateful for, for anyone's support. Um, you know, this has been, been a tough decision to choose to run. I've had to kind of personally give up a lot in terms of, uh, you know, moving and my, my, my career and my family and that type of thing. But, you know, I believe in the mission. I believe in my why. Um, and I think, you know, I, I think my why resonates with a lot of other, you know, people's why. So I will yeah. confirm that because I, <laughs> like I said, the Lincoln day dinner, um, you spoke quite elegantly, but <laughs> truthful you. and mm-hmm. uh, factual. And, and I think a lot of us at the dinner, I mean, I was sitting beside Carlson Jorgensen. He was a good buddy of mine. And, uh, and uh, he, uh, he had said to me, God, I like this kid. I said, I like this kid. I said, dude, I know. The more and more, because as you know, I was a big Alina fan. Obviously, mm-hmm. you know that. And mm-hmm. I make no, no, I don't hide that at all. But she mm-hmm. dropped out and I said, you know what? I have two people left that I can stand behind. That's you and Jason, Jason Preston. This is mm-hmm. another buddy of mine. And uh, people go to Jason Preston's website. Look him up, please. Mm-hmm. But, um, I, I believe you. I really believe you. I think you've got a great message. I think you got a strong, great soul. Um, I don't think you're going to let us down as our um, U.S. congressman. So many have. Um, and, it's, and it's time for things to change. Um, but I will say this. The more and more I talk to Andy Badger, the more and more I like Andy Badger. You know, <laughs> in the Capitol, you know. When we're talking to um, the president of the Senate, I like your engagement with him. You know, I can hear you over my shoulder talking and stuff. I said, dude, I like him. And you had mentioned, (laughs) let's do a protest. We're talking Mm -hmm. about, I can't remember what the topic was, but yeah, I said, I like this guy. I like this guy a lot. But Andy, it was good having you on. I've got about 30 seconds left, so I need to close this show out. Hey, let's do this again later down the road. Definitely. Yeah, that's what I was saying. We need to go out to the range one day. Let's uh, make it happen. And then exercise uh, the Second Amendment. <laughs> and there you go, as many times as we can. But I want to thank you for being here. People look up Andy Badger on his uh, web information, and we will post your links to your website also on our um, 
my website so when people go look at later shows and listen to later shows, they also can see who you are. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is John Harvey, and I'm your host of the Modern Conservative Podcast. Take care, and we love you.